Right. In preparing this episode, I've given a lot of consideration to how I should deal with a very sensitive issue with the Nagra recordings. In the section of audio we're looking at today, Paul and George use a word when talking about Sunhouse and John Lee Hooker that you just wouldn't use today. Not the worst word, not that word, but all the same, not acceptable now. I even went so far as to have a Twitter poll to work out what I should do. Overwhelmingly, people said, call it out. As if it's my job to perform some kind of retrospective social justice. It's a very 2021 perspective and as such, it's beyond the scope of what I want to do with this series. I'm aiming to interpret the Beatles' words in their proper context. I believe that Paul and George are using hip parlance of the period and not talking out of any kind of malice. As for whether I should broadcast these words in 2021, again, context is everything. This word is liable to cause offence now, so why should I deliberately choose to offend people and cause hurt when I don't need to? I'm the father of a mixed-race son. I wouldn't like to cause him any upset, and so I've made the decision to remove these and any future references that may cause offence. Technically, it's bolderizing. But remember, these are eavesdropped conversations, not deliberate artistic statements. Also, removing the word but leaving the rest of the sentence proves the point about the innocence of the statements. There is nothing derogatory in anything else that's being said, so the context remains and no meaning is lost. I hope you'll accept this as a reasonable explanation for why I'm doing these edits. And I certainly don't want to cause embarrassment or upset to Paul or to George's family even if it does somewhat contradict my usual disclaimer that's about to follow. Thank you. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll 29. 29. 3, 2, 1. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that we're like, we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've gone for so many songs, but I've got like, my quantum of tunes for the next 10 years or album. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> <laughs> the winter of discontent. With the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 22 Welcome back again to January 6th, 1969. The Beatles are about to pick up their instruments, but as we'll see, they're not quite ready to start work. Before that though, a quick podcast recommendation. Track by track. It's just a great, fun pop music podcast that loves the albums it talks about. 
is by no means a deep dive, merely a review show, but the chemistry of the two presenters is hugely entertaining and often laugh-out-loud funny. As regular listeners know, we now have two complete days in 19 bingeable episodes. The episodes are getting longer now, as I realise I have so much to cover. Hopefully, they're still easy to digest and hold your interest. If you don't have time for all that, and just want to catch up where we are, here is a brief summary of episode 21. We pick up where episode 20 left off, with Ringo announcing his presence and stating he's feeling a little under the weather. Glyn hints that he's feeling the same. Michael is curious to know if Paul and Ringo have suffered any hearing loss as a result of all the loud music and the screams of the audience. Paul and Ringo merely joke about it, but Glyn offers the opinion, which was common during the 60s, and that Ringo agrees with, that there must be some reflex in your ears to protect you from loud noise over time. Ringo likens it to your ears acting like the pupils in your eyes. We know now that this wasn't the case and that many of the musicians of the 60s and 70s have suffered from hearing loss since that time. I think we've now established that the new voice in the group is Tony Richmond. He mentions that if he's around loud music, he can't sleep, which must be awkward at the moment. Ringo only has an issue if he gets an accidental loud playback over his headphones in the studio. Paul wonders out loud if you really can kill someone with a loud noise. It was a common trope in movies and TV shows like Star Trek. Michael thinks it's a joke, but Glyn really believes you can do it in the right environment. At this point in the commentary, I mistakenly referred to Ken Scott, audio engineer, as Ken Townsend. Sorry about that. John and Yoko arrive. John also complains that he wasn't too good over the weekend. Paul seems aware of this, so we can assume the two have spoken. Michael, after a pause, returns to the subject of the live show but it's immediately shut down by John and Paul, who both say they are thinking about it. In response, Michael suggests they perform it at the Albert Hall, a sarcastic reference to the Cream documentary. We learn that John and Yoko didn't watch it, but instead saw a play on LWT called All Things Being Equal. Ringo flicked between the documentary and Rowan and Martin's laughing. Yoko jokes that the subject of All Things Being Equal, being divorce was very embarrassing. The conversation returns to the Cream documentary. Glyn laments missing laughing to watch it. Paul criticises the fast-cutting style and Ringo jokes about the bad questions in the interviews. A new reel of tape is loaded just in time to catch George's arrival. He asks if anyone has a cigarette. We learn that George struggled to sleep last night but feels okay and that he tried to call Paul but Paul's phone line wasn't working properly which makes you wonder how he was able to talk to John over the weekend. Michael is waiting on the arrival of a new camera and is keen to start filming, though nothing is happening yet. This may be a contributing factor to the lack of activity. Some improvements seem to have been made over the weekend to the performance area. George is impressed. He then wonders out loud why everyone is just sitting around. They say they're talking about the cream show. George also didn't like the concert film, but enjoyed the interviews. Tony asked Glyn what he thought of the sound. Glyn thinks they did a great job, which may be true given the equipment and the environmental limitations. George asked Ringo if he's met Ginger Baker. 
Ringo says yes, they met at the Yellow Submarine premiere. Paul jokes that obviously all star drummers know each other. As Paul and John sing an a cappella version of I've Got a Feeling, George takes the opportunity to offer a new song, Hear Me Lord. He's not met with much enthusiasm from his bandmates, which must be demoralising. Michael tries to bring up the subject of the show. George, possibly still sore from the lack of interest in his new song, or possibly because he hasn't slept, suggests they give up on the idea of a show and go back to bed. As he starts playing his Gibson acoustic, George notices the Apple van arriving with his 8-track machine, which he appears to have had collected from his bungalow this morning. Michael likens the van to an ambulance and then, in a telling comment, mutters, an ambulance for failing documentaries. He rallies the crew to capture some footage of the equipment being unloaded. The tape cuts to a conversation with Paul about his production of the Bonzo Dog Band's Urban Spaceman. There's much praise for the record. Glyn recalls the band's appearance on the show Colour Me Pop. Michael tells the story of the difficulty he had filming the Bonzo Dog Band at the Albert Hall, ironically, but there was too much going on on stage, so clearly it's not an easy place to film. As they talk, George tries to get some interest for Hear Me Lord again, but to no avail. Conversation returns to the cream footage, and especially Eric Clapton's interview. George, too, mocks the interview's questions. For the first time, Paul discusses the filming and suggests getting reverse shots of the unadorned studio in the film, as well as the carefully lit rehearsal space, a subject he'll return to. We learn that Glyn has cobbled together recording equipment from George, from IBC Studios and from EMI, but not quite enough yet. We find out a little bit about the console that Magic Alex is building at Apple Studios and that he's been commissioned to wire together Glyn's equipment. George worries about who's looking after the equipment, but Glyn reassures him he'll have a maintenance guy to keep an eye on everything. Ironic again as Paul's 61 violin bass disappears over this period. Discussion then turns to where they'll put the control room for, to house all the equipment. But since the staging of the show hasn't even been decided, there's no firm decision to be made about where this will be. Ringo inquires if Magic Alex has invented his soundproof waves. Paul says no and tries to change the subject, but Glyn is curious. Paul tells him, we don't like talking about Alex and his soundproof walls of silence. A curious statement, which maybe we'll learn more about later. For now, the Beatles are ready to start work, so let's join them again on the Twickenham soundstage. Michael and Tony are talking in the background, but it's unintelligible, sadly. As we've discussed, the soundstage alternates between chilly ambient temperatures and searing heat from the lamps. Michael checks if everyone is warm enough. There is some kind of space heater being used on set. Paul has sat down at the Lowry organ, 
and is improvising. George inquires after what key Paul is playing in, but this is just so he can tune his guitar. It's Paul turn now playing with the Larry glide switch. It's even more annoying than when John is doing it. interrupts the tuning to tell his fellow Beatles that he's got a bit, as he puts it, of something that might be a song for Ringo. Carry That Weight is just a chorus for now. A chant, not unlike the ending of Hey Jude. After some encouragement, Ringo joins in briefly, but it's pretty high for him. is a verse. This doesn't seem planned. Yeah. That dial is great. <laughs> 
living that life the most. George here complimenting John on his satirical 1969 diary that was given to him on the second. We've covered this in episode two. John commenting that he's living that life, i.e. mundane and repetitive. As the talking Ringo starts playing something on the piano, which you can recognise as the first performance of Octopus's Garden. Well, I think, uh, you know, whatever permutation you put on your life, it still really works out like that. George being philosophical here. No matter what you do, it's all mundane. Yoko captured speaking at length for the first time. She's talking about what they did yesterday, which wasn't very much by the sounds of it. Of course, John could have spent some time writing songs. That may be what George is alluding to here. George's attitude is, whatever you achieve each day, it can be summed up in this way. Tape runs out. Not much time has passed. Paul is still working on Carry That Weight. Roll 31 Wild. Ringo telling a story here. What this appears to be is him telling the story of the origin of the song Octopus's Garden. The instruments are drowning out the conversation and that can be quite frustrating. Paul envisions Carry That Weight as a country song. He demonstrates that. Geordie's asking for guitar strings in the background. A different verse idea from Paul you get a bit of an insight into how he composes here. He has a basic idea and he uses it as a springboard to go off in a variety of directions until he finds something he likes.
George offers an alternative. You're going to open that gate next time. Paul toys with another unfinished melody. They'll revisit this a few times, but many years later, it will be released titled Castle of the King of Birds or Palace of the King of Birds, depending where you hear it. takes his place behind the drum kit. Great tone, comments Paul about the organ. Ringo on drums, the darker sounding guitar is John's, the brighter is George's. to Mal about getting medium gauge strings so he hasn't really solved his tuning issues with Lucy the Les Paul yet. This two chord vamp evolves from Castle of the King of Birds. 
This extended jam is the first of its kind during these sessions. Either deliberately or subconsciously, the Beatles have adopted the Cream's approach of lengthy, mostly improvised jamming after watching last night's documentary. It's an example of how the band absorbs influences. This loose style doesn't particularly suit them, however. The Beatles aren't really a jam band and this performance quickly gets monotonous. That said, I suspect the Beatles are just using this as an opportunity to warm up and get in the right frame of mind. Sink Slate 64. Slate 64 starts here. Wild at the moment. the Larry Glide causes Ringo to comment it's great and then something about getting that sound I think that's praise not sarcasm Ringo's delivery is always so dry it's hard to tell but Paul does it again anyway Tape cuts, Ringo picks up the beat and leads them into a jam that is reminiscent of Louis Louie or any number of other songs based on those three chords. Mostly, this is Paul fiddling with the settings on the organ and changing the sound. Take one. 
Signal 64 announcement. footage I've seen, uh, Yoko is very animated during these jams, smiling and dancing in her chair, and I wonder if that encourages John to play for longer. jam winds down. The organ sound reminds Paul of the theme to Harry Corbett's children's puppet show, Sooty, so he plays a little bit of that. John says, we could always do Across the Universe again. Paul asks, how does it go? This song is just a year old. John has forgotten too and says he's not quite sure. He'll have to get it off of Mal and then starts to play in the wrong key but quickly corrects himself. the other way around, says Paul to John as he plays two colds in the wrong order. John thinks the words are good, but he wasn't happy with the recording they did. performance has potential. Five days before the launch of their Magical Mystery Tour film on British television on December the 21st 1967 the Beatles held a fancy dress party at the Royal Lancaster Hotel in London. Partly it was an event to promote their upcoming project and partly it was a seasonal get-together at the end of another highly successful year. 
The costumes worn by the Beatles and their wives and girlfriends varied from Maureen Starkey's Native American, Paul McCartney and Jane Asher's Pearly King and Queen, George Harrison cutting a dash as a cavalier, to John Lennon's leather-jacketed greaser Teddy Boy. Even guests of the band joined in, tiny singer Lulu dressed up as Shirley Temple. The event turned sour, however, after John, accompanied by his father Alf, got very drunk, ignored his wife Cynthia, dressed in a large crinoline, and turned all his attention to George's wife Patty, who was dressed or semi-dressed as a belly dancer. John actively tried to make a pass at Patty, not only humiliating Cynthia, sitting primly at their table, but suffering the indignity himself of being admonished in a Scots brogue by a tiny Shirley Temple, complete with lollipop. It hadn't been a great couple of months for Cynthia. Interviewed by Hunter Davis for the Beatles' authorised biography, she complained that John could be so lost in his own thoughts, possibly due to tripping on acid, that they wouldn't speak to each other for days at a time. She had suffered another humiliation earlier in the year, rushing to catch a train to Bangor in Wales to the course in Transcendental Meditation with the Beatles and their entourage. She had been stopped at the barrier and left to helplessly watch her husband and his whole circle of friends fade away into the distance, an event she saw as portentous. As she put it, I'm getting off at this stop. The trip to Bangor alone, Cynthia's embarrassment and subsequent dissatisfaction with her marriage perhaps intensified by her husband's public disregard for her, all coalesced to form the inspiration for a song that John felt intensely satisfied with. Whether it was the humiliation at the party or the station or the complete lack of intimacy between them at this point in their marriage, we may never know, but something broke in Cynthia's usual stoic facade. Similarly, we'll never know what was said or whether John even responded. We only have his version of events to go by. I was lying next to my first wife in bed. I was irritated. She must have been going on and on about something and she'd gone to sleep. And I kept hearing these words over and over flowing like an endless stream. I went downstairs and it turned into a sort of cosmic song rather than an irritated song. The bridge or pre-chorus of the song, Jai Guru Deva Om, takes its inspiration directly from the teachings of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Meaning, I give thanks to Guru Dave when translated from Sanskrit. The words form a mantra intended to lull the mind into a higher consciousness. The study of transcendental meditation was enthusiastically taken up by John and George. On the 29th of September, a mere month after the trip to Bangor, both Beatles appear on David Frost's The Frost Programme, where John enthused, I got more energy as a result of meditation. The refrain of the chorus, Nothing's Gonna Change My World, contrasts dramatically to a song John would write in India a few months later. In that song, Revolution, he stated, We all want to change the world. The two worlds in each lyric are different from each other, but the latter calls back to the former. In Across the Universe, John sings of my world, his inner space, unaffected by external influences. After a few months in India, John's focus shifted. He was deeply affected by events in the outside world, yet his response that things would be alright remained rooted in the teachings of Maharishi. In Across the Universe, the verses are most obviously written in that free-form flowing stream of consciousness that John alluded to. All the same, the imagery is poetic and almost profound. Limitless undying love that shines around me like a million suns. 
Thoughts meander like a restless wind inside a letterbox. John was very proud of the lyric, which he wrote first and then set to music. The tune that John composes for Across the Universe features a number of motifs and uh, favourite favorite tricks and techniques that he used in a number of his songs. It's in the key of D, um, but then it goes to some of his favourite chords. You've got the B minor, you've got an F sharp minor, a very nice sounding E minor 7th to an A. And then the second time round, he ends the phrase on a G minor. But in the chorus, the G becomes a G major in that section. Nothing is going to change my world. That's a G major. Back to the D. And that's what they call a 5 4 1 turnaround. It's a kind of blues thing. It's the three chords that make rock and roll. So you do like Louis Louis. It's the same three chords. Rhythmically, he uses something that's very common for John, which is to stretch the meter of the song to fit his lyrics. And in this case, if you listen to the Beatles anthology, there's a take two of Across the Universe where John is struggling to fit the words in. He solved that by adding extra beats. There's a measure of five at the end of the first verse and a measure of six at the end of the second. So it goes one, two, three, four, 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 five, one, two, three, four, 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 five, six. The recording history of the song could take up a whole podcast by itself. It is reasonable to surmise from John's comments here and in subsequent interviews that despite a considerable amount of work, John was still unsatisfied with the recording and thought the band could do better. Post Beatles breakup, he would accuse his bandmates of sabotaging the recording, despite his own clear lack of ideas for an arrangement. The version of Across the Universe that they will play on an acetate to refresh their memories later in the sessions is the unreleased mono mix recorded in February 1968. And so far as the Beatles are concerned right now, this is as far as the song has progressed. It's interesting to note that the PA hasn't been switched on yet. if they'll put out the version recorded last year. John thinks they can do it better. George thinks it was nice, despite John's misgivings. (laughs) 
George indulging in his Dylan obsession now, playing I Want You. This could be the inspiration for John to write a similarly titled song during these sessions. Written and sang by Bob Dylan. I Want You was recorded in the early hours of March 10th, 1966 as the final track for his landmark double album Blonde on Blonde and was issued as a single on June the 20th of that year. The free-flowing lyrical style was an influence on John Lennon during this period and beyond and is notable in this song for offsetting the emphatic I want yous of the chorus against the surreal parade of characters that may or may not be based on real people, including guilty undertakers, lonesome organ grinders, the dancing child in his Chinese suit even, who was thought to be a reference to Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. But really, who knows for sure? George discussed the Newport Folk Festival where Bob Dylan first went electric. George has watched the film of it. Here he mentions bluesman Sun House, who John mishears as Sun Ra and Mike Bloomfield. He refers humorously to Sunhouse's National Resonator guitar as one of those guitars with a dustbin lid on the top. But it's just uh, Mike Bloomfield saying, Blues man, yeah, he went around all the clubs in Chicago. Blues, he played, uh, feel it right to everybody, man, you know, and there's all these really moving people playing, you know, drummers and that. Just playing, and he's there. And then Sunhouse, he said, yeah, it's like the blues, man. And he said that wasn't a blues. Well, he's, you know, it was Broomfield talking, and then it came cut into this other guy, but he thought, you know, it's fantastic. 
the most revelatory thing about George, the quiet beetle, that we've learned so far from these recordings is how much culture he's taking in and how much he wants to share his experiences with his bandmates. So far we've heard George share anecdotes about hanging out in Woodstock with Bob Dylan and the band, the stage play The Beard, seeing Ray Charles in concert featuring Billy Preston and now he's discussing the 1967 documentary film Festival, spelt with an exclamation mark. Released in December the 5th of that year and directed by Murray Lerner, the film is a compilation of performances and interviews from 1963 through to 1966. The footage captures performances from Joan Baez, Johnny Cash, Pete Seeger, but also blues singer Sun House, who George mentions here. The film culminates with Bob Dylan's highly controversial performance with his electric blues band backing him in 1965. At the event on July 25th, some sections of the audience actively booed the performance. Leading members of the folk movement, such as Ewan McCall and Erwin Sibler, went on to criticise Dylan for his shift from political protest songs to more surreal lyrics accompanied by Mike Bloomfield's searing electric guitar. It was the start of a very difficult period in Dylan's career, but ultimately became the blueprint for other pop artists to achieve longevity by switching one audience for another. See, um, one of the ones that's been around for years here. Uh, what's, the, what's the one that's been around here for years? Blues, blues singer. No, just one uh, blues singer. It is no, American blues singer. He's just on his own. He's been touring Britain for years. It's not Jimmy Reed. Uh, um, Sonny Boy Williamson. There's so many. John Lee Hooker, yeah. He's been around a long time in Brits, isn't he? Right. He doesn't live mentions another blues singer, John Lee Hooker, who has apparently been in the UK for years. Paul leaves the organ and pulls on his 1963 Hofner bass, now restrung to be left-handed. Having spent the previous two days playing his original 1961 Hofner violin bass, Paul returned today to his 1963 version. The bass that he had played exclusively on all Beatles singles and albums from I Wanna Hold Your Hand in late 1963 to the end of 1965 and the bass that had travelled the globe during the Beatles touring years until their final paid concert appearance in 1966. The Hofner Company had updated its violin bass design in 1962. Alterations were made to the neck, the design of the headstock logo and the machine heads. The pickups were upgraded from the original diamond logo design to a style with rectangular pole pieces, known by collectors as staple top, and one pickup was moved closer to the bridge. Paul took possession of the new look Hofner, gifted by the company, on October 4th, 1963, just before appearing on the TV show Thank Your Lucky Stars. So, despite taking on an iconic status already as probably the most famous bass in the world, it was by this point only just over five years old. The look of the bass by 1969 had changed a little from its original spec. The pick guard was removed during the final US tour. 
This may have just been a preference, or a way to perhaps modernise the look of the bass. After all, by this point, the 61 Hofner also had no pickguard, nor for that matter did John's Epiphone guitar. That said, it wasn't very well attached, just using two nails, so it may have just fallen off. Later in the sessions, Paul will apply a distinctive bass man sticker to his Hofner. Photographs from the early Twickenham sessions show that label attached to the speaker cabinet of his Fender Bassman amp. Paul clearly saw the humour in labelling himself as the band's bass man and did the switch. One peculiar feature of his Hofner was the rather precarious looking guitar strap arrangement. Resembling a dog lead, it was tied around the guitar body under the neck at one end and dog clipped to the trapeze towel piece at the other. This improvised looking arrangement was actually the standard Hofner strap for this bass. It was tied to the body to reduce strain on the neck joint, but at the other end a leather piece was fitted to a strap stud on the tail end of the guitar. This piece was then clipped onto the dog clip. Clearly, that part was lost or abandoned early on. As we have discussed, the 61 Hofner is not captured in photographs again after Friday 3rd of January, when Paul puts it down to switch to piano. The change today to his 63 Hofner doesn't necessarily mean that the 61 bass has gone missing. It could simply be that Paul prefers this model. He would most likely have played this bass from the first day had it not been inexplicably strong right-handed. I do have a theory about a possible explanation, but do bear in mind that this is pure speculation. During the sessions for the Revolver album, the Beatles had possession of a right-handed Burns new sonic bass. George is pictured with it during sessions for the single paperback writer, and it's played by George on the album track She Said, She Said. After that, the bass isn't seen in any recording session photos, so perhaps it was just on loan. Apparently Sound City often loaned equipment to the band to try out. Between the recording of She Said, She Said and the acquisition of the Fender Bass 6 for use by John and George in 1968, there was only one track recorded that required a bass part to be laid down while Paul was otherwise engaged on keyboard. Outtakes are available on YouTube and the Sgt Pepper 2017 remix release. The song is Fixing a Hole. In these outtakes, you can hear conversations between John and Paul. Ringo is playing drums, Paul is on harpsichord, and it's reasonable to presume John is playing bass, being the only other voice caught on tape. Naturally, John being right-handed, he would require a right-handed bass. It's possible the Burns' new sonic bass was available, but could it also be possible that Paul's unused 63 Hofner, cast aside as it was in favour of his newer Rickenbacker bass, was strung right-handed for this track. It would explain why Paul was miming in the promo film for Revolution on his 61 Hofner. And it would also explain his lack of surprise that the bass was strung that way when he arrived on set on January 2nd. Like I said, it's just a theory. Speaking of fixing a hole... Paul has this fascinating anecdote about the recording session itself. It's a song I wrote in the 60s for the Sgt. Pepper album. And um, the craziest story about it was the evening we were going to have the session. The session was booked. And I was getting ready to go out to the session. And a guy knocked on my door in London. And at that time, I was living on my own, kind of with my bachelor pad in London, you know. So everyone always came around. It was the place to hang out. Um, you could always come to Paul's. It was like 
any time of the night. You could always crash there. Anyway, this guy comes to the door, and I said, yeah, I didn't recognize him. I said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus. So I kind of looked at him, I said, well, you better come in then. You know, what are you going to do? So I got the kettle on. I said, you want a cup of tea? I thought, well, you know, got to treat him right. You never know, you know, he just... So it was fine, and I was chatting away, and he seemed like a great bloke and that. So I said, do you want to come to a session? He said, yeah. I said, you'll have to be very quiet and just sit in a corner, though. I said, I don't want to upset everyone, you know. And I, Lord knows what they're going to think, you know. So I went around, I just sort of said, this, this guy, he says he's Jesus, you know. I don't know, but I mean, I'm not taking any chances. Is it okay if he sits in the corner? So he sat there for the session on fixing the hole. We just made, made the record, said goodnight. I've never seen him since. Paul's bass strings are buzzing quite badly. I think the bass hasn't settled down to the difference in tension of the new strings. Tape cuts. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. <laughs>